See what things the enemy hath done wickedly in the sanctuary. Psalm 73, verse 3. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Everyone knows that the centerpiece of the Catholic religion is the Holy Mass. The Mass is a proper sacrifice in which the true body and blood of the Lord are offered to God under the outward appearances of bread and wine for the ministry of an ordained priest. The Holy Mass renews, you could say, it prolongs and perpetuates the sacrifice our Lord offered once and for all on the cross. In fact, it is the self-same sacrifice. Only the outward manner of the offering differs. That is Catholic dogma. This holy sacrifice, moreover, does not exist in a void, but it is encased in a sublime sequence of prayers and ceremonies called the rite, or the liturgy of the Mass. The ancient axiom of the Church Fathers, lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of praying is the law of believing, reminds us that our liturgical prayers must be an accurate expression of our faith and must inculcate true reverence for God. That is why, especially at the time of the Protestant Reformation, the faith of the people was changed precisely by disrupting the ancient forms of Catholic worship. For example, John Calvin, a radical reformer who denied the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist, once wrote, God has given us a table at which to feast, not an altar on which to offer sacrifice. And so by removing the old high altars and replacing them with a common table, the faith of the people in the sacrifice of the Mass was undermined and soon destroyed. I mention these things because the month of July contains several important anniversaries related to the sacred liturgy. On July 14, 1570, Pope St. Pius V published a newly edited version of the Roman Missal, the book containing the prayers of the Mass. This Mass he promulgated was not, however, cobbled together. It was simply a codification of the existing liturgy that had developed centuries earlier. It was and is a bulwark against error. In promulgating the Roman Missal, Pope Pius V decreed as follows, We grant and concede in perpetuity that for the chanting and reading of the Mass in any church whatsoever, this Missal is hereafter to be followed absolutely without any scruple of conscience or fear of incurring any penalty, judgment, or censure, and may freely and lawfully be used. Nor are superiors, administrators, canons, chaplains, and other secular priests or religious, of whatever title designated, obliged to celebrate the Mass otherwise than as enjoined by us. In order to remedy the decadence that existed in some places, this Holy Pope allowed his Roman Missal to be used everywhere, even in those churches which also had their own local form of the liturgy. But this prudent saint with his delicate respect for tradition, still allowed all local variations, such as the usages of his own Dominican order, to continue in use if desired. The only condition was that such liturgies had to have a pedigree of at least 200 years. 
In other words, something that was simply a recent fabrication could not be considered worthy of use in God's temple. Whereas Pius V abolished all liturgies less than 200 years old, for comparison, we can note that the Novus Ordo, the new rite of Mass devised after Vatican Council II, has only been around for 50 years. These 50 years have been troubled years, and it would be distasteful to review the heavy-handed policies of those who tried to stamp out the timeless Catholic rite of Mass. The last several decades have also fortunately witnessed the providential revival of the ancient rite. That brings us to another anniversary. On July 7, 2007, Pope Benedict XVI issued the letter Summorum Pontificum, and in so doing he made an act of justice by by declaring that the old liturgy had never been abolished. Indeed, never could be abolished. Every Roman Catholic priest has the right to say this Mass, even without special permission, and the people have the right to request and attend this Mass. There is a right to the right right. But the right which is most important, of course, is God's right to receive fitting worship. Summorum Pontificum is emphatically not an indult, which means a special exemption from a prevailing law. It is a recognition that no indult is necessary. What was sacred then is sacred now. Just yesterday, however, came another anniversary in quite another register. It has now been fully one year since the current Bishop of Rome has announced his intention that the traditional Roman liturgy should be curtailed and ultimately phased out altogether. That is why, rather than keeping to the usual custom of explaining the readings of the day, I want to speak to you today about our reasons, your reasons, for remaining attached to this ancient liturgy. We do not do so to be stubborn or nostalgic. As Catholics, we have an instinctive reverence for authority, and we believe in the normative value of law. God's law in the first place, of course, since it is unchangeable, but also the laws of church and state, inasmuch as they are valid, clear, and truly serve the common good. The Catholic Church, however, is not a tyranny or a cult of personality. Reality cannot be replaced by a party line. St. Thomas Aquinas states that when an authority imposes on his subjects burdensome laws conducive not to the common good, then this is an act of violence rather than a law. Therefore, it is not disrespectful to point out that the errors of fact and logical fallacies in the decree from last summer undermine its authority, especially since the Church's own code of canon law reminds us that doubtful laws do not oblige. Given the surprise, confusion, and even hurt felt by so many lay faithful, priests, and also bishops, it seems very certain to just about everyone that this new restrictive policy will in the future be revoked or modified. It is our right and duty to pray and work for this outcome, not only because of the liturgical question itself, but also because of the dishonor it has brought upon the Holy See, a fact noted even by non-Catholics. 
The objection is sometimes made that we should not care too much about the outward form of the liturgy. All that really counts is that Mass is offered validly. It is true that it would be wrong to entertain a punctilious attachment to the outward forms of the liturgy only for their own sake. This would be an empty ritualism, the sort of thing that under the old covenant was distorted into Phariseeism. But it would be very wrong to conclude that the liturgy is therefore unimportant. Fifty years ago, when the new missal was promulgated, the general instruction of the new missal had to be withdrawn and rewritten because the definition of the Mass which it contained savored of heresy. It read, The Lord's Supper, or Mass, is the sacred meeting or gathering of the people of God assembled with a priest presiding to celebrate the memorial of the Lord, a definition which elides the essential sacrificial nature of the Mass and which the great Cardinal Ottaviani therefore decried as a striking departure from the Catholic theology of the Mass as it was formulated in the Council of Trent. And this should hardly surprise us when we recall that six Protestant ministers served as advisors to the committee which produced the new rite. For the Catholic heart, the virtue which we inherited from the ancient Romans under the name of Pietas inclines us to cherish what we have received from our forebears. It is a basic sentiment of civilized humanity, which the Hebrews expressed in this admonition from the book of Proverbs, pass not beyond the ancient bounds which thy fathers have set. From the outset, then, one of the most shocking things about the new Mass is precisely the fact that it is, well, new. Many people do not realize this, thinking that the new Mass is just the old Mass translated into modern languages. Of course, that is not the case. It was overhauled from top to bottom. When he imposed the Novus Ordo in 1969, Pope Paul VI himself apparently without too much remorse, did not hesitate to admit the complete novelty of his liturgical reform when he described his new Mass as, quote, a change in a venerable tradition that has gone on for centuries, something that affects our hereditary religious patrimony, which seemed to enjoy the privilege of being untouched and settled, even admitting that the reform will bring, quote, the kind of upset caused by every novelty, Regardless of what judgment must be passed on the content of the new Missal, its truncated offertory prayers or its made-up new Eucharistic prayers, for example, regardless of one's opinion of these things, we cannot pretend that there is no difference between a sacred ritual whose origins reach back into the mists of time and a liturgy which was drafted by a committee just a few years ago. Or, in the words of the future Pope Benedict XVI, in the place of the liturgy as the fruit of a continual development, they have placed a fabricated liturgy. Pope Benedict, in trying to find a practical solution to the liturgical problem in Summorum Pontificum, had come up with a legal fiction, the idea that there are two parallel forms of the same Mass. One might prefer the one or the other. On a pragmatic level, perhaps his solution was the best that could be achieved in the circumstances. But now the critics of the Old Mass are the ones insisting that it is definitely not a question of taste or preference. They understand also lex credendi, lex orandi, but in a different way. The most recent statement on the subject from Rome a few weeks ago, entrenching the central arguments of last summer's executive order, makes this point when it says, it would be trivial 
to read the tensions unfortunately present around the celebration as a simple divergence between different tastes concerning a particular ritual form. The problematic is primarily ecclesiological. That means the theology of the church. And so there you have it. The two liturgies represent different theologies, not just different tastes. I'm not the one saying that. One American bishop who has done more than just about anyone in the hierarchy to stamp out the old mass made a striking statement a few months ago in speaking about both liturgy and doctrine when he said that reform means adopting a new form and putting aside the earlier one. As if the church can just scrap age-old missiles and even catechisms the way you might change your clothes. If the old mass reflects the Catholic theology of the church, the Eucharist and the priesthood as codified in dogma, for example, at the Council of Trent, and if the new Mass, created in 1969, does not express that same theology, or at least blunts it, then it is very clear why it is precisely our desire to remain faithful to Catholic doctrine that motivates our attachment to the old rite. It is not a question of preference or taste. You all know that the Church is indefectible, meaning that she cannot ever lose anything pertaining to her essence, such as the seven sacraments. This does not mean that church leaders are prevented from occasionally making disastrous blunders in practical policies. The Holy Ghost protects the church from approving for use a form of mass that would be actually invalid or overtly heretical. The validity of a sacrament is either or, not a spectrum. So, of course, we recognize that the Reformed Mass is still valid. Valid just means that the sacrament works. But in terms of receiving grace from a sacrament, there is also the question of fruitfulness. This goes beyond validity and depends on the personal dispositions of the recipient and also on the liturgy itself. When I offer Mass, or when Padre Pio offered Mass, there is no difference in validity, but certainly he offered Mass more fruitfully. Likewise, a form of Mass, hemmed in with careful and precise signs of reverence for the real presence, causes the participants to be better disposed than a liturgy from which signs of adoration and reverence have been systematically removed. The liturgy should also express our faith accurately, and although the modern rite does not actually deny the Catholic faith, which would be impossible, at least in the officially approved liturgical book, nonetheless, it does obscure and attenuate the faith. For example, in the new prayers for the preparation of the gifts, which replace the old offertory prayers, and deliberately mute the Catholic doctrine that the Mass is a sacrifice. Not to mention the abuses and real sacrileges which easily slip in when a liturgy is riddled with options. The decimated mass attendance, plummeted vocations, and almost universal disbelief in the real presence, which have followed the reform, invite us to ask certain questions. Simply clamping down on the old mass will not make these questions disappear. Our attachment to the traditional mass, therefore, is not born of nostalgia or aesthetics, but simply because it is a more perfect expression of the Catholic faith, one which gives greater glory to God and better prepares us for fruitful reception of the sacrament. 
It is a treasure we shall never be prepared to forego. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.